0: This is With You in the Weeds.
1: Do you ever find yourself stuck in between what you know to be true and what you actually experience? Or the difference between where you are and where you want to be? Well, if so, you're in the weeds. And like weeds, those tough places keep coming back. I'm Lynn Roush.
0: And I'm John Tenen. As counselors, Lynn and I deal with those weeds all the time. Together, we designed this podcast because we wanna be with you in those weeds, kind of like God desires to be with us. Hmm. Now, that idea will change everything. So we hope you'll listen in and let us be with you in the weeds. Let's get started. Well, we're
1: back here. The With You in the Weeds team is so glad that you've joined us. My name is Lynn Rausch and I'm a licensed professional counselor and today I'm with two of my colleagues who are also counselors, John and Austin.
0: Yes, it's very good to be here with you. Um, <laughs> You're I also, not British. <laughs> no, but I'd like to be sometimes. Um, I, uh, as well, am a professional counselor with a basic pastor degree and pastored for a long time, and wanted to know how people really tick, like under the hood. So I went back and got a master's in marriage and family therapy, and. Now I'm a therapist and I've been doing that for 10 years. So, tons of experience on this side of the table. <laughs> sure. Austin, yeah, what's up with you? Yeah, man? I'm Austin Connor. Um,
2: I have an MDiv as well, which means I'm a pastor. i um, been doing that for almost 10 years, uh, but I am also a counselor. I technically am a provisionally licensed counselor on my way to licensure as well got my counseling degree from Covenant and have been great school Yeah great school been able to uh, start cutting my teeth here at the crossing um learning from you guys as well so it's been it's been fun to to be in the counseling side but also to be here doing the podcast trying to trying to help people as well so
1: Yeah and so we are a team of pastors and counselors and we created this podcast because we realized you know we have clients coming to us all the time and Their issues are often very similar. We end up having the same conversations with people a lot. And so we decided let's take that. Material that we work with with people in session, and turn it into a podcast where you can be a fly on the wall and listen in and hear us talk about topics that matter to you.
2: And important caveat: we are still honoring client confidentiality.
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: So just so we won't get sued. Yes, Uh. for sure. (laughs) But yeah. Yes,
1: that's very important too. And my my standard
0: fictitious names are Biff Biff and Trixie. Trixie. Yeah. Yes,
1: they're not real people. But we asked our listeners uh, back in the fall to vote on what they wanted us to talk about next. And guess what everybody voted on?
0: I have no idea.
1: They all wanted to hear about how to manage their dysfunctional families. And so I guess this is a topic that resonates with people. And since we're coming out of the holidays, my guess is is that you've spent some time with your family (laughs) and everybody's kind of detoxing a little bit. I mean, can you imagine, right? Coming off of Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so hopefully the timing of this new series is going to be helpful to you. So why should people listen? Well, I don't know if you guys have seen this meme going around social media recently, but it says, I'm in therapy because of all the people in my life who won't go to therapy.
0: (laughs) Everybody else is the problem, right? not me.
1: Right. But I can safely say that this resonates with people because people are frustrated. They're hurting. They feel misunderstood, disconnected. Family relationships are strained, or maybe even completely broken, and they're looking for support and wisdom to know how do I navigate my dysfunctional family from a biblical perspective.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things a lot of my clients that that we've been working on before the holidays, and and I have no doubt after the holidays, is um, you know just how to how to prep and prepare. For these things and also how to recover. And, you know, from my experience, maybe you guys too, a lot of these issues are always there, but there's something about the holidays that magnifies them, that brings them out. You know, mm-hmm. the holidays bring out in a lot of ways the best in people, but also the worst in people. And so we're hoping just that this series does a couple things. Number one, that it gives you perspective, encouragement, practical ideas on just how to manage the dysfunction in your family, maybe recover from it. But second, we're also hoping that this helps you take a look in the mirror as well. In other words, where and how might you be contributing to some of the dysfunction in your own family?
1: That's good.
0: Yeah. And I think I'm going to throw in here, I think this resonates because of something we know, which is every family has some level of dysfunction. True. And I think understanding that is helpful. It normalizes you, takes some pressure off. Um, The Bible is very open and honest about broken families. And about five years ago, you know how you, when you go get a soda, well, it used to be, now you use credit cards, right? But it used to be you'd put coins in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you put the coin in and the coin wouldn't drop. And, right. you know, you'd be shaking the machine <laughs> the at it and kicking it. Right. the um, soda machine. Right. Because you wanted your, your drink, but the coin hadn't dropped. So in a similar way, about five years ago, I don't know why, and, despite all my training and everything, the coin kind of finally dropped when I was listening to somebody talk about the dysfunctional families in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And it was very helpful for me. So real quick, Adam and Eve, one of their kids went Tony Soprano on the other, you know, popped him. Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. murder. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, uh, Abraham, like split his family by sleeping with another woman and having a child out of wedlock. This became a blended family, right? Yeah. We're going to talk about this later. But the result was the family was filled with anguish mm-hmm. and adversarial tensions. Uh, King David called a man after God's own heart. Yet, yet, among his siblings, there was incest, murder, and one of his sons tried to overthrow his kingdom. Not a harmonious family at all. Mm-hmm. Jesus's family, like in Mark 3.20, it's kind of interesting it says his family tried to control him as an adult because they thought he was psychologically ill. Mm. So, you know, there you have a picture in the family uh, systems of the Bible that everything mm. is impacted by sin.
1: You didn't mention Noah, but I know in the Old Testament, Noah's family, there was a lot of... What'd they do to him? <laughs> I don't...
0: <laughs> well, you got to tell us what they did to him.
1: Well, didn't he... Didn't
0: He planted vineyards... After the ark landed, and he got drunk. Yes, that's Shem, the story Ham, I'm thinking of. Exposed him mm-hmm. like as being naked in mm-hmm. his tent, and the Lord mm-hmm. became angry with them. Yes, so they just didn't protect his dignity. Right. So be of good cheer. If you come from a dysfunctional family, you're no different than the families portrayed in the Bible—broken families that included God's dearly loved children—and I. I think this really resonates because it's something also that we see all the time in our own lives and in the lives of those we counsel. And that is no family on this earth escapes mm. the effects of the sin virus ever. And as a result, every family suffers dysfunction somewhere on the spectrum.
2: Yeah. And, you know, John, you saying normalizing this, this is great. The other thing I'm thinking about, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus at the beginning of the gospels, oh, yeah. they list all the people in there. There's some messed up families in there. Mm. Now, why does that matter? Despite the dysfunction, and we need to name that, they are still a part of, let's call it God's story. There's still dignity. There's still value. There's still a point. And so if you're, hopefully that's helpful to know, okay, maybe you've got some dysfunction in your family. Maybe you're part of the problem. That still does not disqualify you from playing a part. You can still make changes and you can still matter and play a part in, let's say, it God's kingdom. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why I'm so glad we're doing this. We need to yeah. name it. We need to talk about it and we can change and it's still there's mm. still hope for people
0: it doesn't shut off god's love mm. and his grace Absolutely. it causes problems right it really does right Yeah. But it doesn't shut off grace. Yeah.
1: Well, there's so many things that we could talk about on this topic, but we thought we would start this series out by establishing with what we think are some basic concepts to just give people a framework so that they can see themselves or their role within a dysfunctional family system. And to start off, we thought we would look at three rules of a dysfunctional family. And this concept actually comes from a book called It Will Never Happen to Me by Claudia Black. Great book. If you haven't read it, I would recommend it. And this book has been around for a while. There have been several publications of it. I think over 2 million copies sold. And for good reason, because the author does a great job of explaining, educating, and highlighting these family dynamics in a way that, as we've been talking about, they can normalize people and help them just make sense of what they've experienced. And so she identifies three rules of the dysfunctional family as this. First rule, don't talk. Second is don't trust. And the third is don't feel. Now, these rules are not posted on the refrigerator, okay? So they are not necessarily spoken out loud explicitly, but they become kind of the implicit subtext for how the family functions. And so today in this episode, we're going to discuss each of these family rules, what they are, what the signs and symptoms of them are. And then in next week's episode, we're going to talk about how you can start to break these rules. So today we're just kind of defining the problem, naming what you might see, and then we're going to look next time at how to establish some healthier
0: patterns. So you're saying that these three things are sort of like unwritten, unspoken Codes the code, yes. Everybody knows yep. this right. is what you it, do. It's
2: almost like we got to put night vision goggles on, mm, mm-hmm. and so that we can see things in the dark. And These are these rules, are hopefully an attempt for you to be able to do that. Put yeah. the night vision goggles on and see boom,
0: boom, boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, when you pull up through a drive through, there's not a sign that says, Hey, when the car in front of you moves forward, you move forward too. You just know that's how it happens,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So part of the family system. So the first one is don't talk. And family thinking under this rule goes something like this. You shouldn't talk to anyone outside of our family about what is happening in our family. So don't tarnish the family reputation. Keep up appearances. And not only are you not allowed to talk with anyone else about our family, we won't talk about our problems within the family either.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: We will only discuss safe subjects and we will pretend that everything is okay. So don't ask questions, keep your feelings to yourself, don't express your own thoughts or opinions because someone might get upset and this will disrupt the family system. So under this rule, you don't talk about the real issues of of what's going on. So some examples of real issues might be, Mom is drinking again, or dad didn't come home last night, or I had to walk home from school because no one came Mm. to pick me up, or dad got a DWI, or maybe your sister is in the bedroom cutting herself. Maybe your brother won't come out of his bedroom and he hasn't been to school in two weeks. Maybe mom has called the police recently because your dad was raging and punching walls. You know,
2: as you read this, I I wish these things weren't real. Like, there's a part of me that thinks this is pretty crazy, but unfortunately, this this is real stuff. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is real stuff, and it's awful.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and the other, these are extreme. There are, on the spectrum, uh, things that are not so powerful and mm-hmm. drastic that happen all the time. Yeah. You know, I'm upset about, like, a test score, and I can't talk to mom and dad about
1: mm-hmm. it. Sure.
2: Right. Because if you do, maybe they're going to shame you. They're going to tell you, you got to do this, you got to do that. So, yeah, you're right to name a spectrum of there's some extreme stuff and subtle stuff. Yeah. And the
0: subtle stuff sometimes is a little more dangerous because it gets swept under the rug.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it can continue a cycle.
1: Right. Yeah. All that. And so, this is under this rule, secrets become very pervasive. And it's not just, you know, keeping confidence over things that should be kept private. Obviously. You know, we don't have to talk about every little thing that happens in our lives, but secrets become part of a system of denial that anything bad is happening. And so it's not just the pain of that hurtful thing, right, the bad thing that has happened, but it's also the pain of not acknowledging That it has happened. That seems
2: like it's key. It's it's, very key. It's healthy in some ways to keep some secrets within the family. But within the family, if you're not acknowledging that and you're denying it's happening, Mm -hmm. that's really the point, right? Yeah.
1: And I think actually it might even be more damaging than the harm itself Mm -hmm. because we're wired to process these hard and difficult things. But we're not wired to be alone with that information, with nowhere to go with it.
0: I think you could underline that in your head, listeners, three times. Mm, It's mm -hmm. the alone piece, the isolation piece that all of these things, these rules we're going to talk about, force you into. Right. That's so destructive.
1: And so what happens in the dysfunctional family system is members of the family are conditioned to not speak about things that are happening literally right in front of them. So Claudia Black in her book, she quotes a child as saying, when you have a rule in your house for so long to not talk about dad's drinking, it's really hard to talk about it now, even when he's sober. So you can see that this rule of don't talk gets so ingrained right, in a person's psyche that even maybe later in life, which we often see this with clients, decades later, they still believe that, oh, this is wrong for me to talk about this. I shouldn't be saying anything about it. But here's the thing. Um, When nothing is spoken out loud or talked about, children grow up thinking that maybe they're crazy.
0: For wanting to talk about it.
1: Right. Right. And that they think, well, maybe this isn't real. Maybe I'm making all of this up in my head. Maybe this is me. Maybe I'm the problem. And so in this family system, mm. here's the thing. People count on the fact that these incidences aren't noticed, aren't talked about, discussed, dealt with. And so this denial serves as a function to perpetuate or allow harmful or negative behavior to continue. So even though the family is in pain, it's a familiar pain. And it's a pain that's best not talked about because talking about it makes it real. And so if we just ignore it, it might go away on its own. And then it doesn't really require anybody to change or deal with anything or address anything. So this belief you know, is don't rock the boat, walk on eggshells, And here's the other thing that I learned about, you know, secrets in families is that everyone has a little bit of the truth, but no one has the full picture of what's happening. And that's where those secrets play such a role, like say in an alcoholic family system, because one child knows one piece, mom knows one piece, you know, relatives know another piece, but because there's no communication and secrets are kept, No one has a full picture of what's going on. And that secret gives the illusion of control. Like, well, I can just kind of control this one piece of information. And if I don't talk about it, it's not real. I don't have to deal with it. But that is an illusion Mm. because the family's out of control. But people believe that, well, if I don't talk about it, I can kind of preserve what's there.
2: Lynn, in your experience, how many people and families do this intentionally? And how much of it is just, Mm. they just don't even know it's happening. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is that even a fair question?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, once you become an adult that denial piece is just so strong. It is so hard to break. I, yeah. I you know, even meeting with people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, mm. you know, just kind of starting to come around to the fact of, you know, maybe my dad was an alcoholic, mm. you know, and you're like, <laughs> the evidence is there, right. you know, but, but the conditioning of the denial is just so thick and it takes so long to kind of break down those walls. And and it's because of the other rules that we're going to get to of not trusting and not feeling. They all feed in together.
0: There's a there's an overlap with all three of these. Yes, them. for sure. Right. But
1: I would just say, you know, this is a problem because relational harmony in a family requires communication. And it requires truthful communication. And, you know, the Bible often uses a metaphor of light and darkness, and it talks about that, you know, deeds that are done in darkness and not brought into the light, we see that that sin festers, it compounds itself, and eventually produces a rotten fruit. And so families end up freezing, they don't grow, they don't mature, they stagnate, because that truth that's required for character development is never brought out into the open. Never talked about. And and because we don't have then as children, maybe a clear picture of it, kids are left to sort of fill in the blank and create their own narrative about, you know, why mom and dad are fighting or where did dad go or why mom has, you know, given dad the silent treatment for the last two weeks. Like they're just trying to fill in the blank. They don't understand. And often then what happens is, They turn in on themselves and it becomes a sort of a self-shaming, self-condemnation. There must be something wrong with me. I must be crazy. And this is the narrative that often is brought to us in therapy. So this is a powerful force that's at work in a dysfunctional family. And if you're listening and you're starting to put the pieces together, that's good because maybe it's bringing some clarity. Maybe it's bringing some things to light.
0: That is so good, Lynn, and honest. As I've heard over the holidays, people saying, I really dread going home mm-hmm. and being around my family. I think some of it's because when they go home, they can't talk about what's there. Sure. They don't know who in the family knows what. Right. And there's no freedom. It's like there's no air to breathe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of keep up.
1: A lot of pretending.
0: Yeah, you keep up the system sure. at the expense of truth and honesty. Mm, mm-hmm. And I, hear, I have a lot of people tell me, hey, I'd rather have holidays with my friends mm, than my family. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why. Okay, let's go to number two. Rule number two of a dysfunctional family, you do not trust. Mm. So basically, children need to be able to depend upon their parents to meet their physical and emotional needs in order to develop trust. And most of the time, parents are pretty good at meeting physical needs. You know, put a roof over the head, food on the table, clothes on the body, education in the mind. You know, that we call that doing love. Mm-hmm. And a lot of parents settle for that. And that's what a lot of people grow up with. But many parents oftentimes, we've, we find, fail to meet a child's emotional needs. And this is what really hinders the ability to trust Beyond just the physical stuff, I mean, you know you could fail at the physical level, but it's so much easier to drop the ball in the emotional realm. Um, just how many movies are made that end with a child saying something like you know this to their dying parent, dad, all I ever wanted was you, I didn't need all your stuff. you were never there
3: hmm.
0: or a parent looking at a kid saying, "Sweetie, I have so many regrets, I wish I would have listened more
3: mm-hmm.
0: I mean. Hollywood makes money off this stuff. So here's how we learn to not trust when we are hurt at a deep level of vulnerability. Yeah. Um, That's where it begins. And the word vulnerable, interestingly, comes from the Latin word for wound. Hmm. And this is because when you are vulnerable, you are open at such a deep level that if it's taken advantage of, you will be wounded deeply. And children are nothing but vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And if their vulnerability is used against them or not honored or cared for or protected or nurtured, they'll learn not to trust. They'll learn, gosh, relationships are not safe.
1: So the family is supposed to be the place where this vulnerability can occur and you're safe. But when the rule of don't trust comes along, what the child learns is, oh, this is not a safe environment. I can't express my needs my feelings my wishes my desires get that emotional connection I need
0: exactly now let me go psychological on you because there's a double whammy to this and here it is the double whammy is that if my most trusted people my mom and dad are not safe and I can't trust them then my only alternative is to trust myself but and here's the double whammy because I don't have all the capacities I need for life and resources, and internally I'm not put together yet, I can never be sure that I can trust my own decisions. And that's a scary place to be. You're on an island without anyone to trust for help and without being able to trust yourself at a deep level because you're still trying to figure life out. So a lot of insecurities Habitual second-guessing feelings of inferiority come from this place of not being able to trust. There's no anchor inside, which is born out of being wounded when you're most vulnerable growing up. Years ago, I had a client. Grew up on a farm, and he tried to do things like his dad, but his dad would always express doubt in him. Mm. Like, oh, you can't do that, son. Well, you didn't do that the right way. And the father would end up doing the job himself. And what the client internalized was because dad can't trust me, I can't trust me either. And he grew up tremendously insecure. You're shaking your head, Austin. What what are you thinking?
2: I I just, I see this for sure in myself and also in just a lot of people I work with. I'm sure you guys are the same. This is just so painful because God has given us the capacity to make decisions and there's a godly confidence that comes. There's kind of a certainty, a, I don't know, there's just this. Like a
1: sense of self. A sense
2: of self, yeah. right? And when mm-hmm.
1: intentionally
2: or not, families question that, it's tragic. Mm-hmm. And it uh, it's a symptom and a sign of just so much. Maybe there's panic. Maybe there's confusion. I mean, there's, I don't know what to go or what to do. And we're not made for that. And so what happens? Well, let's try to cope. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go running into a relationship. I'm going to go look to alcohol. I'm going to go look to pornography. I'm going to go look to maybe, maybe good things, but what, what's the problem underneath it? It's because I'm not sure where to go or what to do. I don't know. I get that question all the time. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then I'll ask something like, well, what's it like not to know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people are like, I can't stand it. It breaks me out. And what you're saying is the origin of this, slowly but surely over time, is it's rooted in this rule of you cannot trust. Right. And it's trusting others, but that turns into can't trust myself, which is just a horrible, awful,
0: tough well, place to be. I can't ask for help. That's not okay. Right. And I have to be self-sufficient, but heck, I don't know what to do. Yeah. So that creates, like, panic, insecurity, Um. A yep. loss of really having a sense of who a person mm-hmm. is yeah and I this is most of my yep. business
2: yeah <laughs> you know you, you've been in this business you guys have been in there a long time what are just some of the experiences that you've seen that contribute to I don't know
0: damaging this trust muscle yeah so great question yep. and I have a list oh, good are you ready yeah um, being one being unable to pro- this is a long list mm. okay so yep. if you're like driving or multitasking, you might need to come back to it or just slow it down or pause it and come back to it later. Mm. All right. Number one, what, what's the big stuff that damages our trust muscle growing up? One, being unable to process emotional, physical, and sexual experiences that are overwhelming.
1: That's like a mic drop moment because that's pretty much
0: everyone,
1: right? Mm. That's so common.
0: Yep. Uh, number two, being controlled emotionally by your caregiver through anger or ridicule. Hmm.
2: What do you mean? Can you give it just a quick example of how somebody might control you or be controlled through anger or ridicule?
0: Yeah. Uh, recently, I was talking to somebody uh, who was describing to me her mom, and as she parented three girls, her mom, whenever they would eat, would stare at their bodies as oh, they ate. Hmm. And she, was, she would gaze at them and glare at their bodies when they would eat because she was communicating to them non-verbally, you need to stay fit. You can't gain weight. Your beauty is everything. Hmm. Yeah. And that would be a way of using uh, very subtle shaming mm-hmm. or kind of a nonverbal corrective yep. or control, like to get the outcome she wanted. Mm. Okay. Another one is being told how to feel or what to feel. You know, real common one here. uh, We don't get angry in this household. (laughs) Okay. Don't you bring that angry face to me. Mm. That's a real common one. Um, And anger is good. It's one of God's attributes, but it's a biggie that parents are uncomfortable with. Uh, Another one is reaching out when a kiddo reaches out to connect, but they're unable to receive connection. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, in part because the parent's not giving it. And if a parent doesn't give it, a kid doesn't get any experience in how to, oh, gosh, thank you for talking to me. That felt really good. Mm-hmm. Um, experiencing events that made you feel scared, hurt, shamed, embarrassed, confused, helpless, abandoned. Hello, does anybody have right. a belly button here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and
2: the key piece here is when you experience those events, you did it alone. You weren't able to process mm-hmm. it with
0: somebody. Bingo. Therefore, you're on your
1: own. Well, in the first rule of not being able to talk, it's like that thing might happen, but we don't talk about Here's it. Here's
0: the overlap. Yeah. How many yeah. of you guys, or how many of you guys, <laughs> how many mm-hmm. times have you guys heard a client say, yeah, my grandpa died when I was 10. Well, how, how was that? Oh, we we didn't really talk right. about it. Yeah. I hear that all the all time. The time. Right. Sure. Divorce, death, Um Yeah, it just doesn't get Mm -hmm. emotionally processed. Um, Being rejected or made to feel inferior or inadequate. Um, I I mean, I'm thinking of examples, but I'm not going to give examples for every single one. Being made to feel unsafe or threatened with exclusion or alienation. Mm. That's a big one.
1: I'm like, my brain is sort of settling on that one. Like, you're sort of cut off from the
0: family. And it comes out in really kind of subtle ways. Like, I've heard mothers say to their daughters, if you don't invite, you know, such and such or this family to our wedding, I'm not paying for it.
3: Oh, yeah.
0: Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Being used by other people so that they feel better about Mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, Being made responsible for making the family look good. Not properly being instructed about how to connect with, understand, and resolve your emotions. And Austin, you're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, growing up in an environment where nonverbal needs are not met and verbal expressions are ignored. In other words, you're just not noticed. You're yeah. not seen.
1: It's so sad. It's
0: like you don't matter. And and I have clients who grew up this way. Sure. Yeah,
2: and, and how that can happen is if you're not noticed, you don't matter, you learn Well, I can't trust those people around me and my family, my caregivers to take care of my own needs. We've tried it before, maybe once, maybe twice, maybe five times. And eventually they're going to learn, all right, there's something wrong with me. I got to deal with this again on my own. Can't trust other people because trusting other people, you're opening yourself up to potentially getting ignored again. Mm -hmm. And again, this isn't a conscious effort of a five or 10-year-old. This just happens. It gets embedded. It's like the wet cement. And then- When you become an adult and you enter relationships and live life and you've got this blueprint and you're wondering, Mm -hmm. why can't I trust anybody? Well, Mm there you go.
0: Yep. And what you learn is that to be in need is bad. Yep. Mm -hmm. And to be a human is to be in need. Mm -hmm. That's how God created Mm -hmm. us. So this really alienates a person. Mm -hmm. Um, Being shamed for your emotions or your body, uh, being adversely affected by caregivers, who were unable to handle pain or emotion themselves.
1: Yeah, that's a big one.
0: Yeah, so they're they're cutting themselves off. Mm-hmm. You can't come to them to trust them to process anything yeah. because they're scared of what you're going through. Right,
1: so mom's depressed, Mom's mom can't get out of bed, mom's basically emotionally shut down or unavailable, so the kid is left wondering who is here to take care of me. I can only take care of myself. I can't trust that mom will be there for me. Yeah, and all of that is the, again, implicit undercurrent, the subtext of what the child is learning. Mm -hmm.
0: The other side to that is I can't be a burden to my parents. Mm. Like if they're in need, my needs can't be brought into the picture. Mm -hmm. So again, it's bad to be in need. Right. There's nowhere to go with it. Um, And then finally, being raised in an environment where you're not allowed to be like who you are. And you had asked me when we were planning for this, Austin, like, what's an example of that? Um, I can can give you an example. When I was growing up, I remember remember riding in the backseat of our family car. I remember the color. Mm -hmm. I remember the road we were on. I remember like so much detail about this moment. And my dad was a dentist. And I said, you know, dad, I think I want to be a doctor. And I was in the backseat And he turned his head to the side, and he said, "You can't do that because you're not any good at math." Mm. That was it. Hmm. So, what would have been a really healthy? Because it's really true. I don't. (laughs) I'm not good at math, (laughs) but you know, a a parent could move into that and say, "Well, what interests you about that?" Sure. Yeah. Like, what's
1: behind that? Like, engage with the child's world. What would
0: it be like if you were a doctor? Mm -hmm. Right. Like you're helping, nurture, and Mm -hmm. helping the child discover. Like their desires, their
2: passions. John, this is all really good and, and really helpful. And, and this leads us into our third and final rule of a dysfunctional family, which is don't feel. Um, won't belabor this point too much, but you know, here's what it looks like. It's essentially a denial of any and all feelings. And you know, kids can develop this as early as eight and even nine year olds. Uh, nine years old? Why? Well, we've kind of explained a little bit, but but they've learned. They've seen and they've experienced that feelings are not safe. And so, therefore, I'm going to deny them. I'm going to stuff them. I'm going to ignore them as a way to bring stability and consistency to my world and maybe even to the world of those around them. Um, For example, let's say you're eight and you see your dad is yelling at your older brother because he's crying. And what's happening there, you're learning that emotions like sadness, they get you yelled at. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to be yelled at. And so, therefore, a connection's made. Sadness is bad. Happy is good. Now, this can if this happened once, I don't think it's a big deal. And you can repair that as a parent. That's fine. But when this happens again and again... And again, and dare we say it's not talked about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Then that's what's going to happen. It's gonna, that lesson's going to take deep roots, and you're going to learn that it's not okay to feel things like sadness, because sadness gets you yelled at. Uh, any issues with this? Well, <laughs> well, yeah. There's there's a couple of problems. Just with Just a this. few problems. Just with a few. This one. Yeah, well,
0: kind of outline. And,
2: it. Right. Yeah. You know. So first, from a developmental standpoint, I mean, we are hardwired to experience emotions. We're born with an amygdala, which processes fear. You know, we have networks to experience joy and gladness and anger. And you might think, you know, if you're wired to do this, you might think you're stuffing them and life's fine, but you're not. I promise. And if you don't think so, ask other people around you. You know, your emotions are going to win in the end.
0: Yeah. And, you know, maybe I think this is kind of interesting to point out If you're not allowed to experience one emotion and you learn to stuff that, you limit your capacity for all of the other emotions Mm -hmm. in your life.
1: And relational connection, which is built on emotion.
0: Exactly. So if you tell yourself, I can't be sad, Hmm. guess what? I don't know why this works this way, but brain research has borne it out. I won't be sad. I can't be sad. Well, therefore, your capacity for joy and happiness is limited. Yeah, it's almost it's
2: almost like there's one highway that all these travel down. You don't yeah. have lots of different routes. You can't mm-hmm. be like, I'm going to take I-70 and then I-63 and whatever. No, they're all traveling essentially on the same highway. And so if you cut one off, that highway gets smaller.
0: Oh, that's a great analogy.
2: Yeah, I like that. It's 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 just that's how we're wired. Very I narrowed wish, down. I wish it were different, but yeah. it's not. And it's so really true. You cut out one, essentially, you you cut out all. Okay. Um. So keep going. Yeah. So so there's that problem from developmentally, but then there's a a biblical uh, problem from a biblical perspective. Uh, Jesus himself experienced emotions he allowed himself to feel he felt he was angry he was joyful and he was sad you know the shortest verse in the bible john eleven thirty-five. 35 he wept when he saw the death of his friend lazarus um just one more place uh is the psalms you know they are mm. filled with emotional expression just this morning i was reading psalm 42 and i'll just read a couple verses here my soul thirsts for god for the living god Now look right there. There's ongoing yearning uh, that continues. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? I mean, there's a deep sadness and hopelessness and just groaning. Um, so, you know, recently we could all talk about examples. This hits home just a little bit for me. You know, over the last couple of weeks, we had, we've had we had someone sick in our house always, you know, started with one kid and then they shared, good for them. <laughs> um, and by the time, you know, everybody's got it. And I swear, it's been like Groundhog Day at our house for the last couple of weeks because somebody's always, you know, had to stay home from work or take off, take care of a sick kid. Productivity drops. And I personally hate that. Um, and, and so anyway, all that to say, in the grand scheme of things, that's uh, a relatively minor setback. I know others of you might be dealing with a lot more, like an unsatisfying marriage, or a boss who takes all the credit for your work, or kids who just won't listen, whatever it is. These are hard things. Now, on top of all that hardship and chaos, could you imagine trying to live with the assumption that you're not allowed to feel any of that?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, right. you've just
2: got to take it on the chin like a champ, be an emotionless robot, put on a happy face that is miserable. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: uh, it's not going to work in the long run. So all that to say, it's a problem from a biblical perspective because Mm -hmm. the Bible actually names and encourages us to express emotions.
0: One of the most freeing things for me when we were parenting little kiddos is when I learned that I had permission to say to myself, I am really angry. Mm-hmm. I'm frustrated. Mm-hmm. I am so disappointed that yeah. my kids are sick and we can't do X. Mm-hmm. And that brought a lot of freedom. Yeah. What really causes trouble is when you're experiencing that and you're saying, well, I love my kids and I, I can't feel these negative emotions because that would mean I maybe don't love my kids or I'm mm-hmm. a bad parent. No, it means you have a belly button. Right. Mm -hmm. And you have to acknowledge it.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I just think what we're talking about is really important because um, a lot of times our clients are afraid to feel their feelings. Oh, yeah. And it stems from the fact that they were not given permission to feel those feelings when they were growing up. But like what we know, feeling is healing. Hmm. When we allow ourselves to feel things, it heals Those parts of ourselves that have hurts and that have been wounded. But this may feel like a brand new horizon for people because Mm. the rules of don't talk, don't trust, don't feel, working in concert together has really locked down parts of themselves that they have never been able to understand, explore, express, but yet have all those feelings but they're just sort of buried. But guess what? When you bury something that's still alive, what does it do? It claws and pounds and screams and it's <laughs> it wants to come out and that's how our feelings are. Mm-hmm. So this has all just been, I think, really important. This is our starting point for this series. But next episode, we are going to look at how can you start to break the family rules because what we know is people want to break these cycles of dysfunction in their family and that's what we enjoy helping people do so we just hope that you join us next time so you can learn how to start to break some of the family rules hey guys it's been real it's been good to be with you thanks for having this great conversation
0: i love talking to you i trust both of you and i really feel good <laughs> yeah. about this awesome. so good to be with you guys
1: see you next week
0: Thanks for letting us be with you in the weeds of life. We want this resource to bring you hope and to help bridge the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Follow us on Instagram at withyouintheweeds. If you like what you're hearing, text the episode to a friend, like us, and leave a review. Until next time, remember, God is with you in the weeds.